Welcome back to the Monday Morning Point Guard Podcast. On today's episode, going to be discussing the trade deadline. We just had one of the most complicated trade deadlines in NBA history, certainly the most complicated one since I've been watching the NBA. Going to be going through each team and all the deals uh, and all the teams that made deals or some that should have made deals that didn't and discussing whether those teams are winners or losers. Obviously, because a lot of these deals were so complicated, it's not as simple as winner or loser. It's not as black and white as that. So going to be discussing kind of the gray areas on the deals as well. If you do enjoy the podcast, please be sure and rate it as well as follow us. Also, if there's a spot that you agree with, disagree with, you can either reach out to us on YouTube or on Twitter, and we'd love to discuss it with you. I want to kick this week off with the biggest deal that was made at the trade deadline, the Ben Simmons-James Harden swap. Last week, I talked about the Nets as a team that wasn't going to make any major moves to shake up their roster because I really just didn't think this deal would get done. I thought that was just those those rumors that we heard were just the 76ers throwing out a smokescreen to try and gain more leverage in in their dealings or just increase the perceived value of Ben Simmons. But it was clear as the week went on, it was more than just a rumor, but I was still shocked. I was floored when this deal got done. Also, if you had told me at the beginning of the year or during the offseason that one of the big three was getting traded this year, I would have bet the entire mortgage that it was going to be Kyrie Irving with everything surrounding him. The deal ends up being James Harden and Paul Millsap for Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, a 2022 first that can be deferred until 2023 up to the nets there, and a 2027 first that's top eight protected, also top eight protected in 2028 and then in 2029 it becomes two seconds this is probably the most complicated deal or at least one of them in nba history as far as breaking down who won and who lost just with everything surrounding simmons and harden but i'm going to attempt to break it all down i really think that this was a good trade for both sides so spoilers both teams are winners here i think that the nets were a bigger winner than the sixers but just As far as the big three goes, this has to be one of the biggest super team failures of all time. It's definitely up there with the Pippen, Barkley, Hakeem Rockets, or the Kobe, Dwight, Nash, Lakers. As it stands, Harden, Durant, and Kyrie played a total of 16 games together in the last two years, which is another reason why I didn't see this deal happening. I just didn't see a reason to move off of that before you had really had a chance to see what it would be. And in those games, those few games that we got, it really looked like it could be something special. I just didn't account for James Harden kicking and screaming until he got his way and got moved on to the team that he wanted. So given the Nets were dealt a really bad hand here, I think they came out of this really, really well, about as good as you could, considering one of your superstars demanded a trade and basically told you he was only willing to go to one team. Obviously, getting some picks back, even if they are heavily protected helps, it's going to provide them flexibility down the road to make upgrades, use a tradable contract and some of those picks just to make some upgrades to role players down the line. But who cares about that right now? Does this trade help or hurt their title chances this year? I'm going to tell you, as a Heat fan, I'm far more frightened of them now than I was before the trade. We talked about in the offseason this team filling out the bench and really surrounding the roster with some talent and some reliable role players, but that just hasn't been the case this year. That is not what actually took place. Patty Mills has been good this year, but Claxton from last year, he hasn't taken that next step. And Blake Griffin, we saw a revitalization of his career last year. He looked like a completely different player from the one that we saw in Detroit, but this season he's reverted back to that Detroit form and it it just looks like it's over for Blake it looks like we're pretty much calling it a career at this point Joe Harris wasn't good in the postseason last year and it sounds like there's a chance he might not even return this year so that's a huge loss also there are just some real weaknesses on this team prior to the trade just in general the over-reliance on Kevin Durant on the defensive end and rebounding those are their two biggest weaknesses that I could see watching the team this year Obviously, having three of the best ISO scores in NBA history made it so a lot of games, none of that really mattered. But regardless, they were really exploitable weaknesses and on this team. And this trade is going to fill a lot of those holes. 
obviously they're losing a huge weapon scoring the ball, but they have enough redundancy scoring wise that they're going to be able to weather that loss. Curry helps mitigate the Joe, Joe Harris loss. If that ends up being a thing, he's going to be able to open up the floor for the rest of the guys. He's also shown shown that he is someone that can get his own shot, obviously to much less degree than Harden to put it mildly, but they don't need him to ISO like Harden would or Durant and Kyrie. They just need him to pick and choose his spots. Maybe get a pick and roll here and there when the, when, when Durant or Kyrie are on the bench, just to give them a couple possessions off, even if they're in the game. So he's not going to be relied on that heavily for that, but his shooting is world-class and it's going to open up the floor for those guys. Drummond, he's been an all-star level big in the past. And while he's not that, player anymore or at least it doesn't look like he's that player anymore he's still relatively young so it's not inconceivable that he could get back to that level he is a decent defensive player and he's still one of the best rebounding bigs in the league or just rebounders in general we could see him entered into the starting five in a more expanded role than the bench role the bench role player that we've seen in the last two years even if he doesn't start for this team he's going to single-handedly mitigate a lot of the rebounding issues that the nets experience Ben Simmons is the headliner of this deal from the net side and no one during the trade deadline is a bigger winner than Ben Simmons for him through a tantrum basically said he's not coming back to the 76ers at all and he gets his way I mean he gets into a really great situation on a winner and it could have worked out better for him. Simmons has shown he's a guy that really doesn't even want to shoot the ball at all on and even in the best of circumstances. And now he's on a team that he's not going to have to, in my mind last year, he could have very easily been defensive player of the year. He was my pick. He can guard one through four at an elite level and he can hold it down on, on the, on the five position as well. He's an elite pastor passer and a good rebounder. He does everything at a very high level, except for shoot and score. His finishing around the basket is also really good, but some of his free throw woes have made him hesitant to drive the ball. I've compared him to Tim Tebow in the past. Tim Tebow was a great football player who did everything very well, except for pass. And as a quarterback, that's a huge problem. Simmons is a great basketball player, except that he can't shoot. And that's the most important thing, particularly when you're talking about a point guard or a wing player, whichever category you want to throw him into. I also mentioned this roster is going to have enough scoring, so he won't be relied on for the scoring parts, but he's going to fill basically all of the holes that this team had. It, the, what they were missing was just a Ben Simmons-sized hole. He's going to give them a lot of flexibility with their lineups. He's going to be able to play basically any position for this group. Offensively, he can still lead the fast break where he's looked borderline unstoppable at times. And in, in the half court, think about him in that Claxton or Bruce Brown role as, as the center. The Nets have used some undersized centers, more so with Brown than Claxton as far as the undersized goes. But just to hang around the dunker spot or run pick and roll as the role man, both Claxton and Brown are adequate to good playmakers on a short roll, able to either drive it in or kick it out to an open shooter. Think about Ben Simmons in that role. He's just a much better version of that with his passing in particular, but he's also a better finisher on the basket than those two. They're probably going to lose him very similarly to the way the Warriors use Draymond. Their skill sets are very similar, both Draymond and Simmons. Obviously, Draymond much more leaning on the intangible side. Defensively, I mentioned how he's a menace guarding positions one through four. I left out the five position just because we haven't seen that from him since Embiid was always getting those matchups, but he is listed at 6'11". So theoretically, he could guard both fives, but I do question how he would hold up in, the, in a playoff series against someone like Embiid or Giannis. For most series, you aren't playing those two. So the center on the other side, good luck when Simmons is on offense, keeping up with his speed, ball skills, and just general athleticism. That's going to be a huge ask for most centers in the league. And Simmons is the perfect guy for the Nets if they were asked to move off of one of the big three. Given the, the, the hand they were dealt here, uh, Simmons skill set wise, ego wise, he's the perfect fit for this team. And for those skeptical of running him at the five just physically, he is taller than Blake Griffin. So given that and given Blake Griffin's athletic deficiencies here at the end of his career, I, I don't think there's any reason that we should doubt that Simmons could hold up physically at the five. 
he's a pass first player. I've mentioned he doesn't have an ego. He doesn't need shots, doesn't need action run for him. Durant doesn't have to be the defensive anchor anymore with guarding the toughest matchup. He and Kyrie can just focus on scoring. You aren't at center relying on old man LaMarcus Aldridge or washed up Blake Griffin or the super young and experienced center options and Nick Claxton, Dayron Sharp. Simmons and Drummond provide real help at the center spot, and Curry is going to give them enough scoring and shooting to help mitigate that Harden loss. Without question, they're a more complete basketball team, but now only time will tell if more complete means better. My biggest worry with them is going to be health-wise. Old guys and injury-plagued guys like Kyrie, Durant, and even Simmons to some degree all have struggled with injuries throughout their career. Also, what version of Ben Simmons are we getting? It's been a while since he's played basketball, and mental health-wise, is he all of a sudden over any issues that he had just due to a change of scenery? That's doubtful. The Nets are currently on a 10-game losing streak without Durant and have fallen to the eighth seed. If Simmons misses some significant time to get his head right or just get into basketball shape in general, even if he is mentally ready to go, and with Kyrie only playing half the games right now, it's not inconceivable for them to drop out of the play-in, especially if Durant and Simmons are missing another month or more. Then it's pedal to the metal to get back into the play and down the stretch, which is more miles on guys like Durant, Kyrie, and anything can happen in a one-game series like the play-in. Either way, though, as a Heat fan, I'm more scared now than I was at, you know, to start the season. And the thought of them as a potentially first-round matchup is really scary. On the 76er side of things, if a deal had been made last year with the Rockets when we all have still had a relatively positive view on Ben Simmons, I'm not sure you could have gotten hardened for you know, Ben Simmons, one first-round pick and a pick that is protected against bottoming out. Seth Curry, obviously a big loss, but Andre Drummond could have basically been signed by anyone in the offseason. So while it's a loss, it, not a huge investment was made to get him. So given that you were able to trade a guy who hasn't played all year, whose most recent memory we have of him is a complete and total meltdown in the playoffs for a top 20 player at worst in this league without just an obscene number of draft picks it is cause to celebrate. Obviously, this improves Philly greatly, especially given the fact that Simmons wasn't playing. Basketball fit-wise, I've seen some people concerned about Harden's ball-dominant nature being a problem, but I don't really share those concerns. I really think Harden will be closer to the version we saw of him last year with the Nets as opposed to the Rockets volume shooter version. We saw him last year become more of a point guard and less of a volume shooter when he had some talent around him. Also, given Embiid as a big guy, he doesn't necessarily need the ball in the same spots as hard. We've seen Embiid play on the perimeter, but it was more out of necessity rather than what he is best at, either because they had Ben Simmons and that pairing or just the lack of talent that they have on the team this year. So with Simmons on the ball list, offensively, he can get to his spots. He can post up deeper, which is, you know, while he might have to give up some shot attempts to James Harden, it should make his scoring a lot more efficient. Or worst case scenario, it's just going to be less tear at, wear and tear on him because he isn't working nearly as hard for his shot attempts. Pick and roll rise, this should be a match made in heaven. The problem with the Embiid-Simmons pick and roll is you could just drop into the paint since Simmons was no threat to shoot from the outside. With Harden, you can't do that at all. He's one of the best pick and roll ball handlers in the history of the league, and he's obviously a fairly lethal jump shooter. And beat as a roll man is terrifying. He can either pop, hard roll, short roll. So it, it just that wasn't the case in Houston with James Harden, where Capella was really only the lob threat. And Bede can kind of do it all on a pick and roll. Once they nail that chemistry, it will take some time. That's going to be as dangerous as any pick and roll combo in the league. The only reason I don't say the most dangerous is because Davis and LeBron still exist. But Harden and Embiid could theoretically be up there. Tobias Harris is also a huge winner this trade deadline. Now he can slide back into that third option slot. He's going to have easier matchups offensively just because he's not Harden is going to be taking away the toughest defender, the toughest perimeter defender. And he's not going to be asked to create his offense nearly as much. I expect eye test wise, it's going to look a lot better. His numbers might improve as well, but at the very least, the eye test with Tobias Harris is going to look a lot better. 
defensively, even though Harden totally mails it in on that end, you still have Matisse, Thibel, and Embiid as a defensive anchor. Both are going to be able to cover up what you're not getting from Harden. Let's pump the brakes a little bit here, though. I believe, realistically, the championship window for this group is going to be this year and next year, and here's why. Harden, the last few years, has been anything but a good soldier, and he's completely torpedoed the last two situations he's been in, and that's basically been in two years that he's done that. Houston, where they catered to his every whim, he rewarded them by intentionally showing up out of shape, so they were forced to deal him. And the net situation he was traded, that he was traded to, 13 months later, he's throwing a tantrum and only wanting to be dealt to Philly. He didn't want to make a formal trade request because he was afraid of the public backlash as if we wouldn't find out that he was throwing a tantrum to one out. So who's to say he's going to be happy in a year from now? I know I've heard conflicting reports on whether he's picking up his option or not, but even if he does, who's to say he's going to want that extension there? You know, all he has to do if he wants out again is complain about the hamstring or the hand or whatever until you're forced to trade him again. It's almost like a reverse Kobe Shaq thing, or it has the potential to be a reverse Kobe Shaq thing. In the past, Embiid wasn't known as a hard worker, but in the last few years, we can't really say that about him anymore. He appears to be laser focused on winning and he's really taking care of himself. Harden, on the other hand, is a guy that plays himself into shape like Shaq, and he's all about the good vibes. So is that chemistry off the court going to work? It's also worth noting that this Rick Ross version of James Harden just isn't as good as the version that we saw in Houston. This year, he's only 22 points a game, and his last year at Houston, he was 34 a game. Now, you might say that playing with Kyrie and KD will do that, and it has it has something to do with the loss in production, but the reality is this year, Kyrie hasn't played in most of the games, and KD has been hurt as of late and hurt because he was being asked to play huge minutes and keeping the team afloat like with a demanding role. With, Ky- with KD and Harden, it just shouldn't be the case that they need KD to play monster minutes to keep them in games. There's real signs of regression here. Numbers-wise, I mentioned the scoring, but that's a result of his field goal percentage and free throw attempts plummeting. Now, you could blame the rule changes, but there's also, eye test-wise, it just looks like a different human playing basketball than the version we saw in Houston. And watching the games, he's having a lot of trouble beating guys off the dribble, so he ends up forced to settle for step-back threes, and he's not getting as much separation as he did in Houston because the threat of him driving just isn't as strong as it was there. Is there a version of this where he walks in the door and is immediately awesome or plays his way back into shape and looks very similar to the Houston version? Yeah, there is. But I've talked about throughout this year, he's 32. The fact that he doesn't take care of himself and the miles he's put on his body in Houston, this is likely the beginning of the end for the really prime version of James Harden. I also mentioned last week Embiid having maybe less MVP type years than we might think. Shaq was 30, his really la- his last really great year. He was still effective for a few more years, but after 30, there was a steep drop off in production. David Robinson was very similar. He averaged 25 a game at 30 and then only averages 20 one more time the rest of his career. Yao Ming, totally done at age 30. Embiid has had some very serious injuries and trouble staying on the court. He missed his first two years with a foot injury, which is really concerning for big guys. And he's also, at most, played 64 games in a season throughout his career. And he's only played at least 60 games twice in his career. I obviously hope it isn't the case, but I think the end of the MVP MVP and bead-type play is going to be here sooner than anyone realizes. This has also really depleted their depth. Say what you want about Andre Drummond, but he provided a big who could start in spots if you wanted to give Embiid the night off or just limit Embiid minutes in general. There isn't another guy on the roster that can do that. Curry was also a huge loss. He was a sharp shooter who was capable of creating his own shot. Obviously, the Cur- replacing the Curry minutes with Harden is great, but that's still a guy you would have liked to avoid throwing in the deal, but I still think you would rather throw him in than Tyrese Maxey. I do worry about the extra wear and tear on Embiid. That could be a factor, but this trade at the end of the day is a huge upgrade on Simmons, even if Simmons had been playing this year. 
while it doesn't move them into championship favorite this year, they're going to be in the mix. The league is wide open currently, and no one would be surprised to see Philly representing the East in the finals. The East is going to be a gauntlet this year, so it's going to be tough for anyone to get out, but they have as good a chance as any team. The other big deal of the trade deadline and what I thought was going to be the biggest deal of the deadline before the Simmons Harden trade was the Kings and Pacers trade. DeMontis Sabonis, Justin Holiday, Jeremy Lamb, and a 2023 second for Tyrese Halliburton, Buddy Heald, and Tristan Thompson. First of all, I want to state that this was a bad deal for the Kings, so I have them as a loser a loser with some strings attached. I seem to be in line with the public's reaction for those on the other side of the argument saying that this was a good deal. Sabonis is only 25. He's a better player than Halliburton. That is all true. And this does make the Kings better today. It makes them a better team today. Also getting rid of Buddy Heald, a bad ish contract. Uh, It is, uh, it was front loaded. So He's making less money as time goes on. It's still kind of a big year's commitment for a guy like him. Uh, That's also good, getting getting that contract out the door. So why is this a bad trade if if the Kings got a better player who's only 25 and got out of a bad contract? Well, Halliburton is an excellent guard on his rookie deal for two more seasons after this year. He's shown flashes of being an all-NBA type guy. And while he isn't likely a number one player on a title team, he could very well end up being a number two and very realistically the third option on a title team. That's not to mention all the intangible stuff with him. He has the makings of a great leader. He's just a winning basketball player. He always makes the extra pass, even if it means he doesn't score or get the assist. The dude just knows how to play a winning style of basketball, and he was committed to making it work in Sacramento. A few weeks ago before the trade, he talked in an interview about being committed to changing the culture and turning the Kings into a winner. As the solo point guard with Fox Hurt, he had some monster nights with huge assist numbers. The worst case scenario for him is somebody like Lonzo, maybe not defensively as good as Lonzo, but a smart point guard who makes the right play and is egoless. The best case is an all-NBA guy capable of being the second best player on a title team, and his teammates were reportedly devastated and shocked. Some, including Halliburton, were brought to tears from him being moved. Egoless guards who are special passers are are rare in today's league. We don't have a lot of pass first point guards. And especially for a small market team like Sacramento, having a guy this young in-house who's committed to making it work, that just seems like you shouldn't want to give that up. That's not to mention the asking price for Sabonis. The Pacers publicly said that they wanted two firsts or a young player in a first. Sure, you got out of there without handing out first, but the Pacers were probably doing Davion Mitchell in a protected first, maybe an unprotected first, but instead they handed out their best asset. Sabonis, to that point, had had very little interest from the trade market, so why overpay? It's like walking into a car dealership where there's a truck you really like, listed at 30000 and then it sat there for months at the dealership with very little interest and very little test drives and no offers, but you decide to walk in there and pay 50000 just because you like it and you're afraid that somebody else is going to get it. For the record, I like Sabonis. I think he's really underrated and he hasn't played in an ideal situation for him. Sabonis needs room to operate in the post for his scoring and he needs the ball so that he can act as a fulcrum or a pivot point for the offense. Fox, at least thus far, seems to want to run pick and roll to death as the ball handler. So this may not be an ideal pairing. I've always said that the best version of De'Aaron Fox is running off the ball, getting handoffs, quick cuts for quick drives. And maybe this Sabonis pair unlocks some of that. Rashawn Holmes is also going to be an odd fit in the same way that Turner and Sabonis were, were odd, except Turner could at least shoot the three. Holmes can't really do that as well to put it mildly. Uh, And then also, are you going to be able to run a backcourt of Davion Mitchell and De'Aaron Fox realistically? Halliburton was at least 6'5", 6'6", 6'4", somewhere in there, a pretty decent size. Davion Mitchell is six foot at best. I think Barnes, the Harrison Barnes fit could actually work. He's played with some passing bigs in the past in Draymond Green. And to some degree, Andrew Bogut was also a really good passer. My only concern 
fit wise for him is that he feels like more of a four in today's league. So if he is playing the four, can Sabonis be the defensive anchor or really hold it down as the solo big guy on the boards defensively, whatever, or if you want to throw Barnes to the three and run a bigger, more defensive oriented guy at the four is Barnes going to be able to chase the three, the threes, the, the wing guys around in the league today, given that he's a little bit older now. Ultimately, Sabonis is a really tough guy to work in and nearly impossible to build around without an offseason to really get the right pieces around him. So if you're optimistic about this deal, don't lose all hope if it doesn't work out right away. And speaking of optimism, let's let's just say this works out. Let's say that Fox and Sabonis, let's say that that pair really works and they surround the team with a competent roster, which is obviously a huge ask of the Kings. What's what's the ceiling for a team where Sabonis is the best player and De'Aaron Fox is the number two? That's what gets me to the biggest problem that I have with the deal. You are committed to Sabonis and Fox as your core going forward, both financially and asset wise. And what has really been accomplished here? My opinion, you have no hope of winning two playoff series or having home court advantage in the first round. So so what's the point? If you can get to the conference finals, you have a puncher's chance at a title. Anything can happen from there. And so in my opinion, if you're gauging whether you want to rebuild or retool, make upgrades, given you know what direction do you want to go in, I think it should be viewed through the lens of can we win two playoff series? Can we realistically have home court in the first round? If you can't do at least one of those things, if you have no chance of doing either, there's no reason to push forward with whatever core you've got. There's just, there's not a reason. And if there's no hope that they're, they're ever going to develop into that. No one seriously thinks a Sabonis Fox core can, can get there, right? The Kings are 21 and 36 as of recording here. So this year they have no chance for home court, but let's at least look at the duos out West and see where they rank going forward. I'm just going to look at the standings now. These are in, these are, these duos are just in order of the standings, not in terms of where I think these duos rank. So we've got Booker and Chris Paul slash DeAndre Ayton as Chris Paul gets older and maybe he retires. I don't think that Fox and, and Sabonis are better than them. Curry and Clay, that's a no. John Morant, Jaron Jackson, no. Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, at least for now, we'll see if that holds true. That's a no. Luca and whoever they decide is going to be their second option. No. Jokic, Murray, no. Cat and Edwards, maybe, but probably not. Um, so that's the first one we've really gotten to that they they might have a case. So that's the seventh seed. Clippers, Paul, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, maybe in the future if their injuries persist, but I'm going to say no for now. LeBron and AD, that's a no. Zion and Ingram, maybe that's kind of dependent on Zion's health. If he's healthy, that's a no. The Blazers going forward, yeah, I would say that the Fox and, and, and Sabonis core is probably better than whatever the Blazers are going to have. So, yeah, DeJounte Murray and whoever the Spurs get as a second option. Yes. Thunder. Yes. Rockets. Yes. So the next few years, it's not even a guarantee that they're going to make the play in. They're going to move up once the Lakers and Warriors and Clippers age out. And also Mitchell and, and Gobert might not have much time left to get left together. After that, they might even make the playoffs proper. But this core is just not a top four team at any point in the West. And I get they're desperate for success. I understand that the front office is desperate for success. They haven't had a winning season or even made the playoffs since 2006. But are your fans going to be happier ultimately with you pushing the chips in here and just getting beat down in the first round year after year? I wouldn't think so. They've been patient this long. They're going to continue to be patient, the ones that you have left at least. So why not deal Fox and rebuild around Halliburton? At least with Halliburton as the main guy, you have a chance to make some noise if you draft smart and sign smart, which is not a given by any stretch, given that it's the Kings. On a slightly more positive note, the Kings, you know, they've made some other move, another move that was really good. They turned Bagley into something, which is great. Coupled with, you know, the Lamb and Holiday acquisitions that they made from the Sabonis deal, this is starting to look like a real team. Holiday, three-point specialist, Lamb, streaky instant offense, microwave-type guy. He's going to help replacing some of the scoring punch that you lost with Buddy Heald. 
he may even be better with the the mopey version of Buddy Heald that they had because he didn't want to be there any longer. I'll give the Kings partial credit here for turning Bagley into something because you had no plans to bring him back next year. So it's great to get some real assets back uh, in DiVincenzo, Trey Lyles, and Josh Jackson. But I'm only willing to give them partial credit because you drafted him over Luka Doncic, who even at the time was seen as potentially the best player in the draft and was certainly viewed more kindly than, than Marvin Bagley. Also, they missed out on Trey Young and Jerry Jackson, so that's that's not great. They get partial credit for the Bagley move. Uh, they've really filled the roster out here. DiVincenzo is a name everyone should be familiar with due to his career on the box. He's a good shooting guard, good shooter, good defender, good athlete. Not really great at anything, but he's going to be a solid role player. It will be interesting to see, though, if he can do a little bit more now that he's going to be asked to do more with the Kings as opposed to the Bucks. Josh Jackson is whatever. I honestly can't believe that he's still around here at the league, but defensively, athletically, maybe he can give you something. Trey Lyles has been a solid stretch four, who's been pretty good for Detroit this year. All of this, you know, for a locker room headache guy that you didn't want to bring back and Marvin Bagley, that's, that's a great job. Although one could argue you gave up a number, former number two overall pick for a couple of role players. So that's not great. The Kings could easily be in the play in as early as this season but the team they are the teams they are competing against for that last spot also improved in the pelicans uh so it, it's going to be tough for them to even make the play in this year i just think it was more of the same mismanagement and, and misunderstanding misreading of the temperature and general direction of your franchise from the kings trading away the wrong guard it was an upgrade in the short term, and maybe Halliburton is never as good as Sabonis, but the promise of Halliburton just seems to be a, an extremely steep price to pay for a couple of first-round exits. That gets me to the next team, the Pacers. I, between Ben Simmons, the Nets, I guess the 76ers to some degree, and the Pacers, I think those were the biggest winners we had. I, I'm kind of leaning towards the Pacers, given what they – what they did here and kind of the direction that they're now trending in where it wasn't looking good a couple weeks ago or even a week ago. They, they just had an excellent trade deadline. Historically, this hasn't been a team that's wanted to bottom out, but it was time to hit the reset button here. I expect the Pacers to be back in playoff contention, maybe even next year, but two years at the worst. I mentioned last week how they should look to turn uh, trades to bonus and Turner, but I never imagined they were getting back a player of Halliburton's quality Halliburton's caliber Halliburton walks in the door he's your starting point guard for the next decade plus add to that that you drafted Chris Duarte who granted he's an older rookie at 24 years old but he's still a real player and much more than the three and D player that he was sold as during draft time the Duarte Halliburton thing could realistically be your backcourt for the next decade Miles Turner, also only 25. If you want to retool and be competitive right away, he can still be a part of your future. Malcolm Brogdon, he's going to be 30 next year. He fits play style-wise with, with Halliburton. Both are able to handle the ball, obviously, but both are also excellent spot-up shooters, so they're able to play off the ball. But you can always move off of Brogdon in the offseason if you choose. I think the trade market for him would be somewhere between the deal that they got for Karis LeVert and the deal that they got for Sabonis. Tristan Thompson, he isn't going to be there after next season, so not worth mentioning. Uh, Buddy Heald, I talked about his front-loaded contract. So it's going to be two years left after this year. So I know he struggled this year, but getting out of that dysfunctional Sacramento situation where he was just unhappy, no no question about it. He was very unhappy there and he's made it very clear that he wanted to be traded for years now. So he could look a lot better. If he does look a lot better, no reason you couldn't move him for more picks and more young assets in the off season covered the Levert trade last week. But just as a reminder, they got back a lottery protected pick and two second round picks with a Ricky Rubio expiring. Lastly, they trade Tory Craig for Jalen Smith and a uh, 2022 second round pick. It's another great trade for them. The second round pick is whatever, but Smith has shown flashes that he's a really good player, not an all-star level guy, but maybe a really quality starter or at the very least a nice role player. Bummer for the Pacers though, because the Suns didn't exercise that team option on him. They can only offer him 
4.7 million to re-sign in the offseason. He's an unrestricted free agent. So if someone would want to take a flyer on him, the Pacers might lose him for nothing. But still, Torrey Craig wasn't a part of your, your future here, and you probably weren't bringing him back after the season. So getting a second round pick out of that, I think is fine. Uh, there's a chance he may not get a significantly better offer. And if you make him feel love, Jalen Smith, he might be inclined to resign with you. Just a really solid deadline for the Pacers. They have their backcourt for the next decade. They have a 25-year-old three-point shooting defensive anchor at center. If they bottom out this year at a really good young player, preferably a wing, this team is starting to look really solid again immediately. The next deal I want to talk about is the Porzingis for Dinwiddie and Berton swap. This one kind of came out of left field for me. Uh, but to start with the Mavs side of things, I think they're a loser. I think they're a loser here at the deadline. Uh, so the deal ends up being Porzingis and a 2022 second round pick for Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans. At first, I was like, great job getting out of the Porzingis contract, Mavs. It's a really great job. But the more I thought about this deal, the less I liked it. It was clear that the Porzingis-Luca combination was not a long-term fit. They didn't play well together. They didn't like one another. I, I'm just not sure that this was the move or even the proper timing to move Porzingis. Remember when Porzingis first got down to the Mavs, we thought this duo was going to be competing for titles year after year, but sadly injuries to Porzingis piled up and erased the dynamic player that we saw in New York. But as far as the trade today, I mentioned last week, the Mavs are fifth in defensive rating. So it, it, that's a no sp small part due to Porzingis, his size in drop coverage makes him really effective. So the defense is probably going to suffer here unless they're able to find a new anchor in terms of where that is at on the roster. Currently, they just cut Moses Brown. So that leaves you with Dwight Powell, Maxi Kleba, Boban, Marquise Chris as your center options. None of them really excite me as defensive anchors. I guess in theory, Boban size-wise can replace the Porzingis as the drop coverage guy, but we've never really seen him excel at that. So why would he start at this stage in his career? For the players they got back, we've seen Davis Bertans in the past be an effective shooter, but given Maxi Kleba is sort of the same thing offensively, being a stretch four and all. And Kleba is actually really solid on defense. Wouldn't you just rather play him? We've seen a better version of Berton shooting wise rather than as opposed to Kleba, but A, not recently, and B, it's a marginal improvement at best for what you're sacrificing defensively playing Bertans over Kleba. For the Dinwiddie thing, what version of him are we getting here? If it's the Washington one, he might have a hard time finding the court, given that the backcourt is so crowded here in Dallas. But if the Nets version, maybe he can maybe he can help. Ideally, he could be a guy who could eat up some minutes carrying the offense with Luca on the bench or when in the game together, you could get Luca off the ball a little bit more. But based on what I saw in Washington, I'm not a huge fan of the fit. Dinwiddie too many times is just dribbling the air out of the ball, and he seems to only want to operate at the top of the key with nothing below the free throw line extended, and that's where Luca likes to work. So how is this going to work? I guess if you're hopeful, uh, the three-guard rotation of Dinwiddie, Jalen Brunson, and Luka Doncic is really tough to deal with, but I'm questioning the fit here, especially with Dinwiddie's propensity to be behave offensively like he's playing in a my career in, in 2k where he just wants the ball back he wants to always have the ball he comes runs to the ball to get the ball and he just he didn't really let anybody in Washington do anything kind of on his own he just seemed uninterested in playing off the ball salary wise I guess it's an improvement on the salary situation trying to move Porzingis like the Porzingis number was going to be harder to match. And with Dinwiddie and Bertans, they're on tradable deals where it's easy to match the yearly salary figure number. It's going to be easy to match the money there, but the Mavs still aren't going to have any cap room going forward, especially given the fact that they just signed Dorian Finney Smith for four years, 52, they extended him. You're also likely wanting to resign Jalen Brunson. And if gap grabbing Dinwiddie is meant to be the Jalen Brunson replacement, I'm feeling even worse about this trade. Years-wise, Dinwiddie has the same amount left um, on his contract as Porzingis did if Porzingis accepts his player option, which given that it's $36 million, I have to imagine that he's going to. And Bertans has an extra year, so we're probably ruling out a big free agency splash 
And granted that Dallas's history as an organization isn't exactly as a free agent destination. I think that's fine. It's, it's questionable whether this improved the team this year. I lean towards yes, but I won't be surprised if the answer ends up being no. Going forward, I guess the reasoning is that they have everybody on tradable deals so we can swap pieces around to build around Luka. But I still found this move really strange. I, I think this was something that could have waited until the offseason when Porzingis has two years left on his deal, and that's not viewed as quite so radioactive looking by other teams. The other team involved in this deal was the Washington Wizards, who I also think is a loser in this deal. From an outsider's perspective, and based on what the organization has said, it seems like the plan is to punt this year for the high draft pick and then retool around a super max Bradley Beal in the offseason. So mission accomplished, I guess. The Wizards are getting, you know, as I mentioned, Porzingis in a, in a 2022 second here back. Dinwiddie had to get moved, and the Bertans contract was absolutely brutal. But does bringing Porzingis in help them? Does it get them any closer to a title? He's going to be harder to move. I have serious doubts if he's even a long-term fit here, if he's even a plan of their future. I think he's going to be more difficult to flip, as I've mentioned, than Bertans and Dinwiddie. It's going to be tougher to retool around Beal just because his salary figure is a lot greater than those two you get out of the the Bertans contract a year early but that's really it here as far as the salary thing goes I, I think you sacrifice some flexibility with two tradable contracts versus one kind of albatross but and I don't think it helps you that much I guess he's only 26 years old and you know with Beal out, maybe the plan is to run things through Porzingis. So in the back half of the season, you make him look really good and maybe increase his value entering the trade market in the offseason. You also aren't going to be winning a lot of games on the back of Porzingis being the, the main focal point of the offense. In the best case scenario, he starts to look like the version we got in New York and he stays healthy. But with less than half the season to go, of a healthy Porzingis, is that enough to convince a team in the offseason that he's an asset at that salary number? I really doubt it. The league's opinions on players is really fickle. Like it changes year to year, it feels like. Think about Chris Paul getting, you know, shipped off from Houston to Oklahoma City. Everybody was really down on him, saying that the contract is untradeable and then he has an awesome year with Oklahoma City and gets them in the playoffs. And now he's the best point guard in the league again. Everybody kind of moves their opinions and shifts them so fickly. But I still don't think even that fickleness is going to be enough to erase the memories of all the injuries with Porzingis. Even in the best case scenario, is Porzingis and a top draft choice in this draft is that going to get you Damian Lillard since he's likely the best player available to be traded for in the offseason I, I don't think so but with the, some of the trades Portland has made this deadline maybe it is then the question becomes is a Dame Beal led team are, are they going to have a chance to compete for a title I don't think that they would. Isn't that really just Dame and CJ all over again? I get that Beal is a better player than CJ, but they play such a similar style. I feel like the results would end up being very similar to their years in Portland, except they're older now. That's why I laid out the case for dealing Beal at the deadline, but that ship has now sailed. Beal is opting out of his $37 million player option. He's going to be demanding a super max or he's going to walk for nothing. Beal being out for the year with the wrist injury likely put a damper on his trade market, but the Harden thing is very similar, except obviously Harden will expect to see play this year. Bradley Beal, you wouldn't, but that was still a gamble on the 76ers part with only one year and an opt-in left on his deal. It's very similar to the contract situation of Bradley Beal. So I think you could have talked the team into the, like the Knicks, for example, you could have talked them into it. They could have talked themselves into this. They also traded Montrez Harrell for Vernon Carey and Ish Smith in a 2023 second. I'm not really upset about that. It's all you can really get for a player like Trez. And it's going to help them bottom out this season. And it's not like Montrez Harrell was going to be a part of their long-term future. I'm just really questioning whether moving two tradable contracts and turning it into a, a Porzingis, which might be, very tough to move. I, I'm really questioning how that's going to help them retool around Beal. And if they weren't planning on retooling around Beal and they're, they're planning on letting him walk rather than supermax him, 
why wouldn't you trade him? I, I just don't get it. The Pelicans like are actually a winner this trade deadline. I can't believe it. Congratulations, David Griffin. You did it. CJ McCollum, um, Mr. Just Doing Cardio, Tony Snell, and Larry Nance for Josh Hart, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Tomas Sadoransky, and Didi Luzada. I don't know who that is. I've never heard of him. Um, also, 2022 top four, uh, protected first-round pick, 2026 and 2027 second round pick really good trade here for the Pelicans. I was really skeptical when I heard they were making a move for CJ McCollum because I figured it would take some future first to get it done. I was concerned that they were going to be cashing in the holiday picks that they got back for trading him to Milwaukee and basically turning Anthony Davis into CJ McCollum, Brandon Ingram and Valanciunas. That would have been a really bad look. Um, but they got out of here really low cost. I liked Walker fine, and Josh Hart is a really solid role player, but CJ is just a lot better than those two. He's easily a top 50 guy in this league, and, and when he's healthy, he could be bordering on top 40. I watched the CJ debut game against the Heat, and even without Zion, they appear to be really annoying to play against. They're going to be able to put up some serious points with Devontae Graham, CJ, Brandon Ingram, and Valanciunas. Defensively, this team is just a, a disaster. It's an entirely different story. Herb Jones, though, is the lone bright spot defensively. He has shown flashes and has the makings of a really special defensive player. So I have to imagine that they're going to slide Devontae Graham into the bench role when Zion comes back, just because I can't imagine benching Herb Jones after how good he's played, even though positionally, I guess that makes CJ your point guard. I don't think that matters as much. Is this move at the end of the day going to convince Zion to take his rehab more seriously or, or stick around beyond that? Maybe, probably not. It at least shows that the team can make competent moves and getting McCollum for very little here is just a step in the right direction. If Zion can't become the elite defensive player he showed flashes of at Duke, then the ceiling of this team just isn't going to be at a championship level. With, with CJ as a third option on offense, that's absolutely a good thing. That's absolutely a positive. If Zion does become that defensive player, that monster that we we thought maybe he could become when he was at Duke, I could see you know a Brandon Ingram, CJ McCollum, awesome Zion trio competing at the top of the West. It doesn't change the destiny of the team in all likelihood though, just because of the huge question marks surrounding Zion by the time he's back and healthy, how old is CJ? Is he still as effective? Probably not, but it, this is at least a step in the right direction for them. The Celtics were also a fairly major deal. I, I have them as a loser uh, it, during this trade deadline they were kind of the last team that made some really significant moves to improve or try to improve. Uh, they're going to add Derek White for Josh Richardson, a top four protected 2022 pick that's going to turn into two seconds in 2024 and then a pick swap, first round pick swap in 2028. They're going to also grab Daniel Tice for Dennis Schroeder, Anis Cantor, Anis Freedom, whatever you want to call him, and Bruno Fernando. Not really a huge fan of either move. That's a pretty steep price for Derek White. Also, given the fact that Josh Richardson has been playing pretty well of late, Derek White is a guard, yes, which was a need, but he doesn't address the playmaking problems that the team faces. Also, shooting was an issue I mentioned last week in their kind of wish list for the Celtics, and White just isn't there as a shooter. 31% on threes this season, 34% for a career. He's a good defender, though, and based on what I've just described, it sounds very similar to Marcus Smart. It seemed to be kind of leading to a Marcus Smart trade situation, at least this deadline, but that didn't happen. So now there's a lot of redundancy there guard-wise, and there's still no playmaking to speak of. White is an upgrade, though, so it isn't all bad. He's an upgrade to the team. It's just a lot to give up for a player that you already have a similar version of on the roster. I have no idea why they brought back Ty Stevens just must really like the guy. I felt that they had already met their quota for undersized centers on bad contracts. So I guess why not? Let's add another one to the mix for the next three to four years. You're going to be spending $20 million on Robert Williams and Daniel Tice. So that's pretty rough. 
it's not that the Tice trade was a downgrade. I just wouldn't have wanted to add $9 million of Tice year after year as a backup center. Maybe the plan is to start he and Robert Williams going forward after Al Horford is out the door, like I imagine he is after this season. Um, so maybe that's the, ch- that's the thing here, but I, I just really feel like there is a better center option for $9 million going for like you could pay 9 million for three more years for a really good center. I feel like, or you could get a center of similar quality for just a lower commitment on the free agent market. I have to imagine, I, I don't know, maybe this improves the team, maybe not, but they just didn't do anything to address their needs. And it's likely that they're still not getting out of the play in territory, given the meat grinder that the East appears to be this year. Also, they trade away Bowl Bowl. So the Bowl Bowl era is over in Boston, over before it really began. How sad. How sad. All right. I'm just going to go through a couple of teams here really quickly before I get to the biggest losers. Um, so the Bucks, I have them as a winner. The, as a part of this DiVincenzo four-team huge trade, they're going to get two seconds in Serge Ibaka. Serge has looked like a shell of the player that he used to be, but he does provide a very similar skill set when healthy to Brooke Lopez. And that's going to be a big addition, especially if Brooke Lopez can't come back. He can slide into that role and hopefully do a decent impression of, of, of Lopez. I don't know how I feel about losing Dante DiVincenzo. I think it's a loss for sure. In their defense, they won the title without him last year because he was hurt. But now Wes Matthews and Grayson Allen have to slide into that slot. And especially going forward now that uh, Pat Connaughton is hurt. Sounds like he'll be back for the end of the year and for the playoff run. But I don't know how I feel about relying on on Wes Matthews and Grayson Allen as, as like wing options. That seems like a lot to ask of them. So that could be concerning. But ultimately, I still think their center need addressing that with Serge Ibaka is is a huge benefit to them and i think that was something that they had to address and to get a guy who plays very similarly to brooke lopez i think that's going to be a a big addition for them the pistons i have them as a winner they add marvin bagley as a part of that divincenzo trade i mentioned so that's great for them they take a flyer on a former number two overall pick we've seen guys in the past leave dysfunctional situations like the kings and, and really take off once they're removed from that bagley is still a very talented player he even though he didn't deserve to be the number two pick in that draft, he was still a top five guy in that draft. So the talent is there still. He's 22 years old, something like that. He could still be a major piece for somebody. And for the Pistons, the cost was really low and he's a free agent after this year. So if you don't like it, if he ends up being a problem in the locker room, if he doesn't show that he cares and wants to work, whatever, doesn't play well, you could just let him walk after this season. And you, you didn't really give up a lot to get the, get a guy like that. The Raptors, I didn't really know what to do with their winners, I guess. They, they add Thad Young. He's a good pickup for a team moving in the right direction. He should give them a boost down the stretch, but it's not anything that's going to move the needle. The Spurs, again, are winners, I guess. They become like a dumping spot for, for salary in exchange for picks. And for a team rebuilding, that's a great decision. So I, I'm glad they're going the rebuilding route because trying to compete and contend around DeJounte Murray, and that's it. I liked, I love DeJounte Murray. I think he's awesome. But him is really the only good player there. That's just not going to be a recipe for success. So time to hit the reset button here and just and start a rebuild. Also, they got Dragic back in, in the uh, deal that the Raptors acquired Thad Young. I hear they're buying him out, so that's that's great. Uh, the Heat are winners. The Thunders are losers, I guess, in that deal. KZ Akpala for a second round pick, and we remove some of the protections on the Heat picks. That's going to give them flexibility to trade those picks moving forward. The Thunder then cut KZ, so I'm not really sure why they did this move, but giving up a second round pick to just cut a guy, I, I don't understand why you would do that, but maybe there's something more behind it. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. So if I have to pick one for them, I guess it's a loser, but it's not like they've sold the future on the back of trading that second round pick for, 
for a guy that they ended up cutting. I am very sad about the KZ thing, though. I'll never stop believing in him as a Heat fan. I thought he was going to be awesome. I thought I still think he has the chance to be awesome as like a discount version or Walmart brand version of uh, Giannis. Just he's shown flashes that he's a really awesome defensive player. He's a super athlete. He's shown some shooting touch. I I hope that somebody gives him a chance and I hope he gets it together because I'm really rooting for that kid. Uh, The Hornets, I have them as winners as well. I I just want to spend a little bit of time on this deal just because it's not, it's a pretty big upgrade for the Hornets, but it's not anything that's really going to move the needle for them. Getting Trez and uh, Montrez Harrell in exchange for Ishmith, Vernon Carey and a second round pick, that's a low cost and that really addresses a need for them, but they really needed a defensive anchor. Trez is an upgrade on either PJ Washington or Mason Plumley, but he's not a defensive anchor. He's not anything resembling a defensive anchor. I, don't, I wouldn't even consider him an average defender or a neutral defender. I consider him a negative on that end as opposed to a plus or even a, a, a wash. Um, Trez, though, offensively, he's going to be able to run the floor really well. He's going to give LaMelo Ball another really fun target on the break and in the half court. He's shown that he can really score in the post. It's going to improve the team, but it's not moving them up a tier in terms of competitiveness. They're not going to be threatening for an Eastern Conference title this year, but I think grabbing a guy like that for a low cost for a team that's looking to make the playoffs and make a little bit of noise for the first time in in their team's history – I guess they had one pretty good year as the Bobcats from what I remember off the top of my head. But for this iteration of the, the, the Bobcats slash Hornets before the Hornets get moved to New Orleans, this is really the first year that they're really showing signs of really any type of competitiveness. Um, let's move on lastly to the biggest losers. I think the Blazers are arguably the biggest loser for teams that participated in the trade deadline. I think they're unquestionably the biggest loser there. Whether they're the biggest loser of the entire trade deadline, I'll leave that up to you, but at least to the teams that participated and make deals, I think they're unquestionably the biggest loser. What is going on here? I, I know they have an interim GM, but good Lord, what is he thinking? This deadline reminded me of one of those going out of business sales that you see where the store owner is going bankrupt and he's planning to flee Mexico. So he sells everything at a 90% discount just to get everything moved and scrounge up what little cash he can so he can hire a pilot to fly him out of the country. That's what it felt like. I I want to talk to Dame for a little bit here. I, I understand you want to be remembered as Kobe or Dirk or Duncan, but it just isn't in the cards for you. It's not happening here. No one is going to blame you for asking out. This is a horrible situation. It's been a horrible situation pretty much your entire time there. So please just, we want to see you compete for something and it's just not going to happen here. Last week I talked about the Norman Powell Covington trade and how they basically turned Gary Trent into Norman Powell. And that was turned into Eric Bloodsoe and a second round pick couple that with the fact that they gave up two first to get Covington. That's, that's a disaster. What else have they done? Well, I mentioned the CJ McCollum trade where they get a first in this year's draft in two seconds. They got Nikhil Alexander Walker, a 23 year old who is a solid player. I thought that was a good pickup for them. I thought that it was a guy they could kind of, use this year and maybe ship off for an upgrade in the off season. Well, I, you know what, Never mind. They shipped him off too. In that deal, they send him to Utah and get back Elijah Hughes, a second year player who has done nothing but warm the bench and a second round pick. Oh, also they got Joe Ingles and Joe Ingles is a solid player. Only problem is he's out for the season and on an expiring contract. So he's probably not resigning. Also like his injury is a little bit concerning at his age. So he may not be the same player going forward. So what are they doing here? I think the plan is similar to the wizards plan, have a baseball major league baseball style style deadline fire sale, and then try again with new free agents and retool around Dame. I, I guess that's the plan. I just have so many problems with this from the Blazers' perspective. For those keeping score at home, they have acquired four second-round picks, a first-round pick that is protected in 2022 for a team that is likely at least making the play-in, so it's going to be a late lottery pick at best, and a bunch of expiring contracts. What did that cost them to make, To like the Thanos meme? What did it cost? Everything. Well, to do that, 
They gave up Norman Powell, who was Gary Trent at one point. Gary Trent is a 23-year-old player averaging like 18 a game in Toronto right now. C.J. McCollum, Robert Covington, slash two first-round picks, however you want to look at that. So, so was that worth it? Was it worth it to do all that and just get a couple of second-round picks and one first to show for it? That seems like an outright disaster to me. So, Okay, now we want to argue, well, they, they're clearing up some cap room with these these – um, with these expiring contracts. So what will the Blazers have cap room wise next year? Well, right now they're at 20 or I'm sorry, 92 million committed. They've got a four year or $4 million option on this year. Little that I have to imagine they're accepting. And then there's a four ish million dollar Eric Bledsoe buyout that I imagine is coming. Cause I doubt they're wanting to sign up for $17 million of him next year. So that's going to put them at about 100 ish million for payroll for next year. The cap for next year is 15, 16 million, and the luxury tax threshold is 140 million. That basically means you can add a player for $15 million or so. If the owner there is willing to go into the luxury tax range, you could probably bring back both Anthony Simons and Yusef Nurkic. But if not, it, Simons is the only guy you're going to be able to bring back. I have to imagine you could bring him back over Nurkic anyway. Is the $15 million a year player that you're going to pick up going to be better than the CJ McCollum and Norman Powell players? That is doubtful. That is doubtful at best. And even if they cleared up enough cap by somehow to sign a max type player, has Portland ever been a free agent destination? I did some digging and looking back, it looks like Rod Strickland was by far the biggest named guy that they've ever signed in the team history, free agency wise. So not real promising on that account either. I mentioned Porzingis and a top pick. Would that be enough to get Dame? Well, let's look at the opposite. Is, is a top pick in the draft getting you Bradley Beal? He would be another guy that might be available. Um, once again, you know, this is kind of feeling like Dame and CJ all over again. And free agency wise, they aren't going to have the money to get the guys that they want to move the needle. And there's just not guys that are good fits available in this free agent class that they're going to be able to get realistically. That's going to move the needle. I'm sorry, Blazers fans. It's been a tough year and there's likely a rebuild without Dame coming. Otherwise, you're going to be forced to just sit there and watch him waste away the last few year, good years he has left. That's a tough situation to be in as a Blazers fan. I don't know what I would be rooting for as one. I Personally, I would be rooting for him to get out of the situation and, and start this rebuild sooner rather than later. Just rip the Band-Aid off. It, it's just not looking good. The next big loser has to be the Utah Jazz. I talked about last week the Jazz being in a, a danger zone team that had to make significant moves in order to surpass the Suns out west since they're both built very similarly unfortunately unfortunately as good as alexander walker was in place of an injured joe ingles i'm left unconvinced that what they did is going to move them forward i'm also unconvinced that alexander walker can give them more than what ingles did so in all likelihood they're worse off than the team we saw last year on top of that there's been more rumblings that donovan mitchell and rudy gobert hate one another i even saw a report this week that an early playoff exit is likely to get Donovan Mitchell to want out. So they are really in dangerous waters here as far as going forward. They really needed to make some moves this deadline. And I expected more from a GM of Danny Ainge's caliber, but he just didn't get it done. I expect this team to be a second round exit at best, but I wouldn't be surprised with the chemistry issues that they're clearly having and the lack of perimeter defense that they appear to have as being real issues and resulting in maybe even a first round exit. It, it's just not looking good there. Uh, the Knicks, the, these next two teams are teams that, didn't make any moves come deadline, and that's what's causing them to be big losers. The Knicks, I, last week I mentioned them as a panic button team, but nobody really wanted Julius Randle. Nobody wanted Kemba, Fournier, Burks, any of that group. So they're stuck with what they have. There's very little chance of them making the play-in game this year with how good the East is, and it's just disappointing to see them toil around in mediocrity here. Also, you know, given the chemistry issues that they're having, that's just only going to contribute more to 
the issues they're going to find even making the play in. They really needed to either blow it up or add a major player. And it's it. I have to feel like CJ McCollum could have really helped them it, at the price that Portland gave him away for. It feels like the Knicks could have offered a better deal than that. All hope isn't lost, though. They have some cap rooms, some tradable contracts, a few young guys that are really viewed as assets, but they're going to need to capitalize on those things come offseason. Otherwise, they're going to be picking in the late lottery year after year because the East is looking really good. It could be really good moving forward. The Lakers are obviously another really big loser. And if you want more on them, I've talked about them at nauseum, either, you know, listen to last week's podcast or the midseason update podcast. I did a whole thing breaking down their roster and what they can actually realistically do on the midseason podcast. But there's just now there's even more trouble brewing here. I saw a report this week that everyone was in agreement that they shouldn't make a move, you know, the front office and the players and like what felt like minutes later, there was a report that LeBron and Anthony Davis absolutely did not feel that way. So conflicting report there, maybe a rift between the front office and the players. And I, I don't know, it, it's hard to separate the GM from LeBron because it seems like he has his fingerprints all over every move that every team he's on makes, ex- with the exception of the heat. So it, it's hard to really feel bad for him for the situation he finds himself in. Last week, when the uh, Lakers played the Bucks, LeBron was asked by a reporter if he felt that the team could reach the level this year that the Bucks are at. And his response was basically, no, they have no chance of that. So that's not exactly a vote of confidence from your best player and leader. But the reality is no one wanted Taylor Horton Tucker for anything that was going to help the Lakers. He wasn't seen as an asset by the other teams in the league. And there wasn't a trade for Russell Westbrook out there. There just wasn't a trade for him. The Knicks were their best option. But I think if the Lakers weren't willing to consider throwing in a 2027 first, which is likely going to be a very good pick, that the Knicks weren't going to be interested in that and nor should they have been. So there just wasn't really a move for them to make with the Russell Westbrook trade where they got rid of all their tradable contracts and assets to bring him in. They really just backed themselves into a corner. Maybe in the off season, you can move Russ as an expiring player. Or maybe you make him so miserable this season that he declines his option, but things just aren't really looking very good here. And it's just it's troubling it's just it's not it's not looking great and I think that they're in deep trouble here even going forward especially as LeBron ages Anthony Davis has already shown a lot of injury issues it's really leaning towards LeBron leaving after next season leaving the Lakers and maybe joining another team I know he's already kind of viewed as a mercenary, so maybe he doesn't want to play into that narrative anymore, or maybe he thinks that he already is viewed in that light, so it doesn't matter. But it's going to be really tough for the Lakers to improve this roster moving forward. Granted, you know, they are seen as a free agent destination, and they have been in the past, so they can make upgrades free agency-wise even if they can't do so via trades or the draft. But next year, their salary cap, they're already capped out. Like They they can't sign really any additional players except maybe under a mid-level exception or just league minimum guys like they did this season, and we've seen how that hasn't worked out. So they're in deep trouble.